he dis- disappeared one day in a snowstorm and he he wasn't discovered or his body was wasn't discovered afterwards either so it's this really mystery about my namesake Emmanuel and the disappearance of him uh, which is so connected to the landscape as well I'm Peter Holiday and this is the land behind the podcast devoted to exploring questions of photography perception and place Born in Stockholm in 1863, Axel Hambury is mostly remembered today as a geographer, a scientist and a cartographer. What is perhaps lesser known about him is his talent as a photographer. At the beginning of the 20th century, he began journeying to the glaciated highlands of the Scandinavian mountains in northern Sweden to conduct a number of geological surveys in a region named Sarek. These studies were carried out over a period of several decades, and in 1922, Hanbury's photographs from these expeditions were published by the Swedish Tourist Association in his book named The Mountains of Sarek. Almost a century later, another Swedish photographer named Emanuel Serekvist would happen upon the weather station built by Hanbury at Partachoka during a hike through Sarek National Park with his father in 2013. Over a subsequent period of six years, the Gothenburg-based photographer returned to this region of the Swedish Arctic to continue a dialogue with the history of Axel Hambury. The photographs from these explorations were eventually printed alongside Hambury's archive images in Serekvi's own book, The Margin of Error, self-published in 2019 via the artist book collective Black Book Publications. In this episode, I speak to Serekvist about the motivations and processes behind the making of this book. Sarek is a vast mountainous landscape where people occasionally go missing. It has been described as Europe's last wilderness, but it is by no means an empty and uninhabited space. It has been a home for the indigenous Sami people for centuries, if not thousands of years, and the place names that appear in Hanbury's own maps of Sarek honour and commemorate this deep cultural heritage. Having made some of my own pictures within the horizons of the Scandinavian mountains, I was very excited to have the opportunity to speak with Emanuel Serekvist. His book, The Margin of Error, is an important work, exploring the convergence of two distinct historical perspectives within the same space. Its pages invite many deep and complex questions, not only about the ways by which we come to perceive and understand landscapes, but about the essence of the documentary medium itself. If you find value in this conversation and would like to help me nurture this community of perspectives and voices, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon via the link in the description. Whilst I remain committed to sharing long-form, accessible and educational content free of charge, your generous contribution will help to cover the expenses associated with creating this podcast. In the meantime, consider clicking the follow button if you wish to stay notified of future episodes. So... Without further ado, my conversation with Emanuel Sederqvist now begins. Emanuel Sederqvist, thank you for taking your time to speak with me this afternoon. Thank you for inviting me, Peter. The central power of photography, especially in the context of the documentary medium, 
lies in the way by which it can make history visible. And your book, The Margin of Error, is an excellent example of that. But before we talk about your book, I'd like you to introduce yourself for our audience. Describe who you are and where you come from. Uh, I'm Emanuel Sederqvist from Sweden, originally from Öland, an island in the southeast of Sweden. But I've been living and working in Gothenburg on the west coast since the last 15 years or so. Uh, I moved to Gothenburg to start my bachelor in photography and I've been working as an artist and photographer since then, mainly through different photo publications. I usually think that the photo book works as a gallery room where I'm able to show my work. And uh, my, uh, I guess my main interest lies within memory, place and perception and how we read the landscape through our own experience. Um, and that's basically it. And so when, when did, do you remember what your first photograph was? Uh, no, I'm not sure, but uh, I think I was introduced to the camera by my father, who had like an interest since way back. Um, probably, probably some landscape from Erland, where I grew up. Yeah, yeah. So that's on, that's on the East Coast. Yeah. Well, I first discovered your work uh, last summer, and I'm surprised I actually I hadn't heard of it before, before that. But uh, at the time, I'd only just returned from a residency, an artist residency in Svalbard. And as I began to work through my own material from this journey, uh, I was eager to know how its coastline had been approached by other photographers in the past. And my research quickly led on to the photographer Axel Hambury, who voyaged to Svalbard in the late 19th century um, aboard uh, scientific, well, Swedish scientific expeditions to the archipelago. And it was as I searched deeper into Axel Hambury's work that I quickly found your book, The Margin of Error. And you, you mentioned how you publish your own photo books. And this, this, The Margin of Error, as, as you've to previously told me, was published in uh, 2019 by Black Book Publications, which is a photo book collective that you're a part of, as I believe. But in this book, you present your own photographs side by side with Hanbury's own images from the same landscape. Can you tell us about this landscape where that you where you where you have this dialogue with Amber's images and what, what what yeah take us to the north of Sweden to to this place uh, the place where I took the photograph to the book is called Sarik which is a national park in north of Sweden um, and they say that it's like the last wilderness of North Europe um, so it's a very it's a very special landscape where you don't see so many like traces of humans or any buildings at all. Uh, so it's quite untouched. Um, and the reason why I started the project with the, the margin of error was that I by chance discovered or saw Hamburg's uh, weather station at the mountaintop uh, 
quite close to Kvikjok or two two days of walking from Kvikjok. Um, and when I first saw this weather station, I didn't know what it was and I didn't know who built it. That came like one year after that I know Hambar by, by name and that that the building was his. Um, so it started with this weather station who who really looked very strange, but also when I when I learned that uh, the weather station was uh, a home to an observer called Emanuel Hovling, and Emanuel Hovling had this strange story because he he dis- disappeared one day in a snowstorm, and he. He wasn't discovered, or his body was wasn't discovered afterwards either. So it's this really mystery about my namesake Emmanuel and the disappearance of him, uh, which is so connected to the landscape as well. Um, so it's it's this mystery uh, that I'm trying to like discover or. It's it's a searching through the landscape and the archives in the whole book. So um, you, you're looking for Emmanuel, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. So s- since the first trip there in 2013, I've been there uh, three more times, um, looking through the landscape uh, and see if I could find some remains, uh, but also looking for him in the archive of Axel Hamburg. It took a lot of photos of this area uh, in in the like start of nineteen hundred. Mm-hmm. And and have you found them in these images? Uh, no, I haven't. Unfortunately, not. I mean, he's he's in a few pictures, but uh, but not so many. Um, Can you tell us for for our audience where exactly Kvikjok is? Describe this region for us. Uh, Kvikjok is like to it's, it's not easy to describe but it's close to the Norwegian border uh, it's, it's not easy to describe if you don't <laughs> have any, any else anywhere else to to pinpoint like it's like Boden and then just far west to yeah. the Norwegian border so it's in the heart of the Scandinavian mountains yeah 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 and you mentioned um, the archive of Hambury and your book, The Margin of Error, is as much about Hambury's images as it is about yours. Tell us about Hambury. I'm not sure if he is so well known as a photographer. He's mainly like known as a nature scientist um, who like started these weather stations and he... He was doing research, nature research, research in every way he could, I think, like geology, zoology, and uh, different research uh, in this area. And he started when, when Sarek was this blind spot in the map, sort of. Uh, so no one had really been there and done research before. He... And I think he used he used this he used the camera that was sort of a new invention by then to to do photogrammet 
country, uh, like to calculate and measure measure the landscape through triangulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he made a map over the area, uh, like a, a, the first accurate map of of this place. So he was um, a cartographer as well. Yeah. So what do you think he was looking for there? You were you've 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 gone to Sarek to look for Emmanuel, but what was what do you think Axel Hambury was looking for? I'm not sure. I he he was like living in the same time as Andrea, and Andrea did his uh, like trying to reach the North Pole by a balloon. Yeah, this is S S A Andre. Yeah. 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 So he was, I think he, he was trying to do uh, something similar maybe, but uh, trying to explore somehow. And Sarek was this space that no one, no one maybe had uh, done research in before. So. Yeah, it was uh, during an age when people were, when Swedes were increasingly venturing to the Arctic in both Svalbard and the Swedish Arctic, where you've been making these images. Yeah, yeah. we should mention that this Kvikjok is, is very much in the Swedish Arctic, um, within the bounds of the Arctic Circle. So uh, I can imagine it must be quite a challenging terrain to, to work in. With the, you have to navigate these mountain passes and, and the glaciers. and um, it's, as you say, it's, it's a landscape where people have gone missing as well. Um, many people yes. have gone missing and many people still go missing there. So, but they're not entirely, I think we should stress that it's not entirely a wilderness. There are, there are cultures there that have made this landscape their home for centuries as well. Um, and I'm speaking about the Sami reindeer herding cultures um, that have been there for centuries, if not thousands of years. So, but I can imagine, you know, Axel Hamber, he was from Stockholm. He was born in Stockholm. So he was looking north from Stockholm into this region, which the, the mainstream Swedish culture was relatively unaware of. And that's why, yeah. you, that's why you call it a blind spot. It's a, bl- it's a blind spot in the imagination of, of Stockholm. Yeah, that's true. But also, like, I don't think it was, it was really a blind spot on the map because they were, were like, the mountain tops were not measured, so they didn't know how high they were and stuff like that. And and that was, was Hamburg's main goal with his photographies, also doing this uh, topography photographs uh, to just explain for, or he also made uh, like a tourist book for SFF or SDF. The tourist association uh, in Swedish yeah, Swedish, Swedish tourist association. Uh, so, and he was really trying to describe Sarek for the for the tourists. Uh, um, and the book itself is quite funny. It it's I think you could order it uh, in a newly printed version. Um, where he, oh, his, he his, also, uh, this is um, his book was called. The Mountains of Sarek, I think. Yeah. 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 And it was published in around 1922, if I remember correctly. That's true. Um, it's, very, it's a nice book. And he also wears wear the clothes that 
he think you should wear when you're out hiking in this region. So it's a manual um, as well, hiking manual. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, uh, his, his images are great. He was obviously a talented photographer, as, as you are as well. And the way that the images work in the book is, is fascinating, the way they edit them. But you also mention in the book that, uh, as you've just mentioned, that Axel was trying to, well, one of his projects was to measure the height of the mountains. But you mention in the book that your photographs aren't about, they're not so much about that attitude of, of wanting to control nature, but being open to it. So is there, is there, what's, what do you think the contrast is in attitude between your images and Axel's? Um, I'm, I'm not sure really. Maybe, maybe, I mean, it's how I try to be, how, my, how I want the process to be when I work as a photographer or artist is to be open to the unpredictable, unpredictable, but... Uh, it's also this thing by when you work with archival fo photographs, you sort of lose the. Uh, you you don't know what the photographer has, had, what kind of thoughts the photographer had when he took them, so it's also for your own imagination to think. Uh, there's not so many notes from Hamburg, for example. You can't. You don't know where the photo is t taken, or yeah. you don't know what he thought when he took it. So uh, it's also a bit of a mystery with those archival photographs, which which I really like. Um, so and that's nice with his photos. But it it was also a bit problematic to work with his images because I think they are so much better than mine. Uh, <laughs> so so you you really had to like think twice before. But it's almost like it's a, it's almost like a historical collaboration. Yeah, maybe through which both both photographers, you and Axel, obviously without his knowledge, but or his permission, but uh, <laughs> these these are these images are obviously in, in public archives now. Yeah. Um, and that, I also want to ask you about that too. Um, during our conversation, what it was like to work with that archive, but. You know, it almost it the work it, you, you in, in the dialogue between you, your images and Axel's images, you become you both become something else. You know, you become it's this weird historical collaboration in a sense. Yeah, it's also the thing with the landscape because it hasn't changed that much in this one hundred years that is in between our images. Uh, which is also nice because when you walk in the landscape of Sarek, it's also this. It's it's a weird thing because you don't you don't have your cell phones with you and you mm -hmm. don't. Snow like, time marks anywhere, so it could be like prehistorical. It's like a void in somehow. Mm -hmm. Maybe you you also have. Uh, I know you've been walking and hiking in the north of Sweden, so maybe no. Yeah, about how that's, that's perhaps one reason why I also find your work so so fascinating and beautiful is because I recognise these these familiar land 
these landscapes are somewhat familiar to me too. I've never been to Sarek. I hope to go there um, one day soon. But I've been to similar similar um, region. I know I've been to the Scandinavian mountains and I've made work there. So um, I know what it's like to be in in that space. Um, and I've had some I've had some wonderful experiences being without phone reception, reading a deep philosophical text that I've chose that I've mm. dared myself to take out from the library here in Helsinki. I, I said these landscapes were familiar to me, but going there can be a deeply unfamiliar experience as you, as you just drawn upon too. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the, what I'm saying is that the experience is familiar. The experience of being somewhere unfamiliar without phone reception is fam- very familiar to me. That's what I'm saying. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so, um, and actually I have a friend, a colleague and a fr- friend who I studied with and he asked me, or he summed my work up as, it's not just a, it's not just a dialogue with other human beings. It's a dialogue with um, solitude itself. He he. That's how he would sum. He that's how he summed up my practice, because I do photograph these big, uh, empty expanses that don't, mm. don't. There are there's always a human reference somewhere, and the human being is implicit in the picture because it's I'm in a sense photographing my visual perception. Mm. So even I like I've said this before and in previously that even if the human being doesn't appear in the actual image visibly, they're still there. That's also interesting to 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 consider. But how how much do you think that your work is also a solid a, a dialogue with solitude and yeah a dialogue with with silence, so to speak? Would you see something of that in your own work when you go to these? empty spaces uh, I'm not sure what to answer on that question really uh, <laughs> what's, what, what does it feel like to be there to be um, grounded in this space and looking for Emmanuel Hoefling and looking for Axel Hanbury's the traces of this mysterious they're both mysteries you know, yeah. These two people represent mysteries to us in a sense, and yeah, the work in your the work in your book illustrates that as well. Mm. There, there is a there is a deep mystery to some of the images. Um, yeah, yeah. It's also like I know I'm not sure if you read read uh, Rebecca Solnit's uh, Field Guide of Getting Lost. Is that the title? Something like that. Uh, so it's it's also about you put yourself to a, to a risk, you could actually get lost in that landscape. Uh, and that somehow make you feel more alive in a way. Uh, so maybe that's the thing. Um, and we, I sort of, most of the trips I did, or all of them, I also went there with my dad. So it's, it's safe to be two all the time mm-hmm. if, something, if something happens. Uh, but in a strange way that, like, it also make you more relaxed. So mm-hmm. you have you have less less stuff with you and less less. Absolutely, there's like a, there's some yeah there's yeah. I, when I looked through this book, it became very obvious to me that you can only make these images if you have a tent, if you're staying with this landscape for extended periods of time. 
Mm. You know, if you're cooking out of a trangia, trangia every night, yeah, you know, that's true. Mm. The, that's that's implicit in the images. That's what it. That's I understand. That's what it takes because I've done it myself. That's how I do it. You know. Yeah. It's not just about going to take pictures. It's about the 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 amount of research that goes into these um, trips beforehand. Um, mm. You know, you have to work out. Well, how many days am I going to spend there? Where where am I going to go? Where where do I? I don't like to have a too too tight an itinerary. But I like to know where I'm going to be roughly within a certain date. And so, you know, you have to kind of, you have to plan your checkpoints. And then, food. Yeah. And if you can't resupply, then you have to work out how much food you're taking, how much fuel, mm. all these, all these, all these things. And um, yeah, it's, th- these are, you mentioned Rebecca Solnit. I haven't read that book myself, but I understand what you said about how these are landscapes where you can get lost. They're, they're, they're to be respected, you know. Mm. Um, last year, I almost lost my life crossing a river. <laughs> I remember yeah. it vividly. And I, I never, I learned a lot in that experience. Um, the, the, the map said that there was, a, there was a, a crossing through the river. So I trusted the map, mm. but it wasn't really a crossing at all. It was, it was very sketchy. Um, and... Uh, and it wasn't deep either. It wasn't a deep river. It was just very rocky. There was algae growing on the rocks. There was a slight current, and 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 it was just there was one big deep area where the where the water where the current was concentrated. And at that point, I kind of had to jump through the water. And that was mm. looking back, you know that 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 kind of memory is what I reflect on that memory, and I think can't believe I did that. It sends shivers up my spine. So yeah, I understand that these are landscapes where, you know, as, as I keep on emphasizing, people, you can get lost, people have gone missing and people continue to go missing. And you emphasize this in the book too. Emmanuel Hoff, Hoffling, you know, he, nobody knows where he went. His kind of path vanishes in the snow. Can you tell us, uh, can, we, can we talk about that mystery a bit more? Uh, sure. Uh, I think uh, it happened when they ran out of food, uh... And he was working at this uh, weather station at Portichocco, close to a mountain top, uh, in in kind of extreme weather conditions. So they lived there for two years um, and were getting food from um, from a guy uh, climbing there uh, every even like month or so. But uh, for some reason he didn't came. Um, so one of the two men up there needed to go back to another cabin just closer to Kvikjok. Um And it was Emanuel Hovling who went. He was getting there, writing a letter, um, and some bad weather came when he was getting back, um, which is a bit ironic because he was working at the weather station, but they couldn't uh, couldn't see that bad weather coming in, um, and uh, and he disappeared when when it was coming snow. Some uh, and they think that he he was close to this to this cliff where the weather station is, uh, but somehow 
didn't see it or it was too windy or something. So they thought that he ended up at the glacier just below the cliff. Um, so one of the last trips we did in 2017 was to uh, the glacier tongue uh, where he might have ended up. Uh, we was thinking that we were thinking that he might uh, be visible, like because of the glacier melting. But it was so that's the that's the historical context now. Yeah, climate that's change. The yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, so, so is are you you're trying to make him visible? Is the project yeah, about in, that? In one way, yeah. Um, or or just looking for him is 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 like the project. And this um, this this makes me think of the title as well. I've been thinking about the title a lot, um, and it's a title with numerous meanings. The margin mm. of error, and the margin of error is a is a scientific term. Uh, but it's also it's a, to do with measurement. Yeah, you know, it's the margin mm. of error that's allowed within scientific measurements mm. but there's also there's also a slight poetry there too because in a way these you've you've previously told me that these images are made close to where axel hanbury himself also would have made his images too mm. you're standing in the same spot as he would mm. and yet it's, it's a different picture the measurements aren't exactly the same and then so you're almost kind of you're looking for for his gaze. You'll never find it, of course, but there'll always be a certain there's there's a real margin of error to that process that you can get close to it, but you'll you're not within the same parameters. Mm, yeah, maybe that's true. I mean, there's something with like the mistake or uh, to fail in a way. It's it's sort of poetic and it's. It's the same of like I was reading a lot of uh, books, or I read uh, one book specifically about uh, the story of Andrea, uh, which I also mentioned before, and the, and the balloon to the North Pole. That that also ended up in a like a crash, and they they like were eaten by uh, by beers in the end uh, very tragical sto- story but it's something with with that like with the margin of error that is very interesting I think uh, I'm not sure how to describe describe it but um, it's, it's something poetic with that uh, that I want to 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 emphasize in the book and how long did it take you to to decide on that title, what was it? What was it like naming this book? Uh, it was hard because it's also, and that was also the hard thing with the project because it's it's so many different stories within the story, and so many layers, um, and it felt like somehow that I was lost in the project itself in, at some point, both in landscape and the project and the. Uh, archive uh, but in one way I also try to keep the project open so the the one reading the book and the one looking at the project could 
find find a path by him or herself in there um hopefully at least i i try not to be too didactic either when i work with my projects so we try to keep them sort of open um but what what do you think the core message of of the book is if there, there's multiple layers you're working with uh, axel hanbury's archive you're following the the path that trails off of Emmanuel Hoefling. You're you're going there. You previously in a previous conversation, you told me that you originally travelled there with your dad in 2013, and so it has all these. There's a lot of elements to it. There's, and it's also maybe about your more deeply. It's also about your. Uh, you're trying to understand what it means to be be Swedish, perhaps. You're trying to figure out your place, or Sweden's place, uh, or no, there's whether or not you're aware of that or not. There's there's definitely that to it. I mean, it's just, you're trying to you're telling a Swedish a Swedish history. So, mm. um, and there's this historical link, and there's a cultural link, mm. and these are obviously traveling there with your your father must have been extremely personal experience too so what do you what but how would you sum it up if you have if there's a is there a core message is that that you see at the bottom of all these layers do i do i need to choose it's like (laughs) i uh that was my main issue when i like i had i had the book and i needed to write a text about it and i in one way, I think it could be all of all of those things you just said, uh, but I think my main interest was like this story of my namesake and trying to follow him and search for him in the landscape in in the archive um, so it's sort of an homage for for him um, as i did like i did I found this instrument that is called an heliograph uh, yeah yeah. There's a picture which, in the book. Yeah, which yeah. is similar to uh, f- like a, the technique of the, the camera. Um, it's mainly just a big lens, a uh, glass ball, uh, which concentrate the uh, sunlight and make um, uh, like a, a thin line on a cardboard at the back. It burns out. So by this instrument, you can measure the hours of sunlight during one day. Um, and I bought one of those instruments as well, in heliograph. So it starts with uh, uh, Axel Hamber's heliograph. It's like the first picture in the book. And also the cardboard, cardboard where the, he measured the, the amount of sunlight, uh, the exact date where Emanuel Hovling disappeared uh, from that weather station in Porek. And it ends with my own measurements 100 years after, on the same day uh, when Emanuel Hovling disappeared in 2017 uh, from a rooftop in Gothenburg, where I measure the amount of sunlight uh, in Gothenburg. All right, so, so, so that's, that, that heliograph was taken in Gothenburg? Yeah. So it's also, the reason I asked you about what, you know what you th- what do you think the core message is is because because mm. my my own work is a is about many things too mm. but how would i would i think it's important to also consider whilst there are all these narratives within a story what is the core message you know um 
it doesn't. You don't. It, it, I do. I don't believe that it needs that a photography project needs to be reduced to that core message. But I think it's important to consider how we we might can communicate how we can communicate the the essence of all the narratives within the work in one sentence yeah. in, in a couple of sentences for example mm. and that's that can be a really challenging thing to do um but the idea of dialogue is central to your mm. to your work the dialogue yeah, between dialogue. two photographers between yourself and Axel Hambury between two places or multiple places perhaps um now that you now that I know that the heliograph was was made in Gothenburg mm. um between two two times you're also searching for you you've you've made the book you've even dedicated the book in honor of Emanuel Hoefling or Hoefling mm. Mm. and so this yeah but I that think, was more that was more than two sentences <laughs> yeah yeah so it's, true so it's so it's always hard i think mean, it's also a way i mean as I, I work as a publisher as well, or through my own self-publishing black book publications. So uh, in one way or another, you, you always need to do this small text where you have to like basically sell your product, which is, I mean, it's not a good way of putting it, but it's also what you need to do uh, if you applying for grants and everything but it's it's not it's not uh... but nobody understands your work nobody will ever understand the work in the same way that the artist does no because the artist is the one that spent the time with it perhaps years with it and even even I like to say that I don't even you know I understand my work but to what extent is the question, you know, what am I really doing? I don't, this is an open question. Mm. I can, I can, I can explain the process to you and I can explain the key ideas. You're, you're, you're suggesting that there are cultural expectations within the arts to, to explain mm. a, a body of work mm. succinctly and concisely. Cause there is a lot going on in your book and there's so much, there's so much to it. Um, let's talk about the, the how you how you used archive images, for example. That must have been an entire process in itself. What was what was? Tell us about the where you found the archive and what it was like to work through it. And yeah. Uh, so I knew about the archive, like from sort of when I first saw the the weather station in 2014 or maybe one year after or something like that. But I, they, I think they digitalized it like later. So I scanned it and everything. So, but I saw some, some analog glass plates uh, at the library in Uppsala. Um, so I knew about it, but I was also waiting a bit to, to research it fully because I didn't want my own pictures to to be like the archive pictures. So I waited until I after I did my last trip there in 2017 and then they had uh, digitalized uh, all of them. Uh, so it's about, I think it's like 3,000 pictures uh, 
where you you could actually find them online uh, if you want to. Yeah, is that uh, the Al- at the Alvin portal? Yeah. It's so, one resource, yeah. So you could just search for Axel Humber in there and you end up with a lot of images of basically just mountaintops. Um, and they all kind of random. Um, but what I did was that I... I browsed through them all uh, and were looking for like traces or if he had like if Hamburg had photographed uh, the same view as I did and and sometimes he had Um, and I also as I said before I was looking if looking for Emmanuel if I could find something within the picture uh, of him Um, and there was like some of the pictures were similar to mine as well uh so and i had i had like a field diary uh, when i did the hiking trips um so the pictures are combined and kind of loosely um yeah combined with my pictures and my thoughts maybe when i took my own pictures from the same kind of area um but there was also this trouble uh to if I could use them uh, as I said before, I thought they were like really great photographs um so at first i I didn't know how to use them if i should if I should put them like in a different size than mine or if um, uh, but in the end i I've sort of keep them in the same format as I found them. Uh, and didn't I did some retouch like just dust and stuff like that, but I kept them as they were mostly, um, trying to do it respectfully and and so on. Uh, some of them are combined with my own pictures just to show that they are almost like taken from the same spot. Did you ever feel like you were? Stealing something from Axel without his permission. Yeah, maybe maybe a bit, but yeah, it was my first time working with archival in like material like this. But at the same time, it was also like since he wasn't known as a photographer, I thought it was like a like a very very special material to to use and also to be able to show it to others. Uh, because I think, I mean, most of the images are so beautiful. And what do you think he yeah. would think that he you'd made a book from his images? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, <laughs> I I hope he's glad that they were printed <laughs> somehow. Yeah, but yeah. I'm not sure. What was the, what was the editing process like? How did you choose the the way in which the images? came after one another in the book it's mainly i had to lean on something sort of so it it's like chronologically how how we walked sort of so it's from from the first trip uh from the south of sarek padjalanta and like the second trip and ends with the last trip in 2017 uh so it's it's like the field diary, uh, and they also. 
how it's also like when I did the sequence, it's also how they look together, of course, and and it's also uh, I've been also reading Sebald a bit, uh, which is a author who worked with. Do you know about him? No, no, no. He he worked with images and text together. So I tried to do that uh, in the index, like connecting. Uh, like the image to yeah. the text in a I way. thought that was yeah. a beautiful way to to caption the images so so to speak instead of just there's so many books that um they have the caption index at the at the end for example mm. but the way that you caption the images is almost in relation to the text you your your images are are placed within the text, or arranged within the text, or around the text, or the text is arranged around the images at the back of this book. And the so, essay is called uh, "The Journey and the Disappearance" as well. This is yeah, an so, this is an essay that you wrote yourself. Exactly. So it's basically like the the field diary. So and and that was what I was trying to do, like making the the image look like text or so you read the image in the same time when you read read the image or the text the same image so what um what material decisions did you make when designing the book for example what why did you why why the paper that you chose or why the why this size and mm. I've been working together with um, Eric uh, Palmier, which is a great designer, uh, with all of my books, um, and we we kind of start backwards. Uh, what kind of budget do we have? How big can we do it? What kind of paper can we afford? Uh, what is fun to play with that doesn't cost so much money? So we've used the Pantone color for the for the text in the end and also the index uh, which has uh, like a uncoated paper and the images are printed on a coated paper so and also the size is kind of kind of a sm smaller size maybe for being a photo book but it also means that it's uh, cheaper to ship <laughs> so it's like budget design through budget or sort of yeah so there are there are financial mm. influences yeah of course yeah which is all, i think that's important to acknowledge <laughs> it's unfortunately always the case but <laughs> we can't have everything i'm i'm looking through the book at the moment and it's a beautiful book thank you and a lot of the there's as i said before there's not many people in in these uh in these images but there are certainly traces of human being in a lot of them and a lot of the a lot of the human beings are in the archive photographs themselves and there are the for example there's a uh, Hanbury's team at the weather station which still stands today which you you've also included your own images of that weather station there are many of the individuals are seem to be wearing traditional Sami clothing 
which would imply that they are members of the local indigenous community. What kind of relationship did Axel Hanbury have with these, with the local people? Uh, I think he was, uh, I mean, he was paying them for doing, helping him in the landscape. Uh, they were the ones who know the, the place best, of course. Um, so I think he had a good relationship. But um, yeah, I think the reason why they are in the pictures is often like, here I think that uh, Hamba's scientific uh, view of things or why he chose to photograph stuff is like, I think they are there to show like a scale. There's one image where there's a stick, like where they measure the thickness of the glacier, for example. And I think the person is there just to to show how long the stick is, like to to be like a scale one to one, just to measure. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because most those images are so nice portraits as well, and I think you could see that he respect the person, even though, mm. like, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, but they mean. were, they were co- of course helping him in the landscape that he didn't know that well. Um, mm. Axel Hambury was working at a time when um, Sweden was was uh, was beginning to understand itself as its own its own nation. The nineteenth century, for example, is known as that century when there was an, the emergence of the national consciousness, for example, mm. in many different European countries. But and it was also a an era when European nations were were expanding their empires and expand and consolidating their territory. And mm. perhaps you could also read what Axel Hambury was doing against this context too. So, what were the, what kind of colonial questions or colonial histories did did you have to acknowledge as you moved through this terrain? Uh, I'm I'm not sure, but I think I mean, if you speak of Axel Hambury when he did this new map of this area, he chose to to keep most of the uh, names of like the the mountain tops and so on from the Same language. Yeah, so that's quite interesting. It's called like Padjelanta and uh, Portichocco and all of the mountains. Almost all of them keep the same name in his map but speaking of like how i i i mean when i worked with the project i the story is not about the sama people there uh, and also sarek as a protected national park they it's not a political area or there the sama people can still be there and um, and work and so on and live uh, because there's no like mining or anything like that couldn't be done there. Um, so but in the, in, the surra- in the surrounding landscape, though, there are, there are a lot of yeah. mining activities, yeah. though, for Kiruna, for example. Yeah. Um, but the, some uh, people haven't been forced to move from there, for example. But some, uh, some Sami people have been forced to move to northern Sarek, at least. Yeah. But that, that's, that's, a, that's another question, though. You know, that's, I understand that you're, 
your project is is more to do with Axel Hanbury, but I was just uh, wondering how how you faced some like what 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 were the kind of ethical problems that were that emerged uh, during during this project? Did you have any? Did anyone question you or um, celebrate what you were doing or? Were there any, yeah, what were, what were some of the difficult questions that you faced? There must have been, there's always one. There's always one. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've got one, one of those questions. Like uh, me doing the same as Axel Hamber did almost, like being a tourist in this area, being a white m- middle-aged man, man in like doing this kind of project, explore uh, a landscape. Uh, but in the end, you always need to, to choose whatever you should do the project anyway and just trying to do it as you want it like a more poetic view of something or you could just skip doing it uh, it's yeah but i think that's also important to remember that you have to be authentic to to the question that you've set yourself mm. and you have to it's a commitment and that involves following it through until the end and and this and this beautiful book in front of me is the end, and I'm sure the project hasn't even truly ended. I'm sure you're still exhibiting this whenever the chance arises, and I'm sure you're still thinking about it. I'm sure it's still influencing the work that you make now. But I think it's really important that you, ha- you have to have a conviction as an artist to, to, to freedom of expression, to freedom of thought. Um, and you do need to be respectful uh, of mm. others, and I think... I don't think that needs to be stressed so much um, because I think our artists are already quite sensitive people. And I also think that you get, it's also, some artists benefit greatly from being controversial as well. Mm. Mm. So I think it's, um, it's about questioning, isn't it? And it's about challenge, challenging each other. And also being an artist is you open yourself up to being challenged. And I think that's really important to stress that if you if you want to make a body of, of art, don't be surprised when you start receiving difficult questions from people. Mm. And that's only if you can work out the answers to those questions, it's only going to make you a better a better mm. artist as well. Mm. But I think you you we shouldn't we shouldn't forget like the intrinsic value of of artistic expression and, and being able to ask questions, but also being able to tolerate difficult questions that are put to ourselves as well. Mm. And, and that'll only make us better, better artists, I think. Mm. But you, you, you also, you also have a story. I think that, um, you had a show, you, you've exhibited this work in, in, in certain places. Where, where, where has yeah, this be, work been exhibited? Uh, at the art museum or Const, in Gothenburg, um, it was part of a group show. Um, where I exhibited it. Um, so, yeah, and there was a, not an art, artist, a Sami artist, who who actually... Uh, I'm not sure if it, this was her or it came, the information came from a different angle, but uh, I learned to know that she was a relative to one of the people who was helping Ambari. It was, it, that was very strange. <laughs> but that's what's so beautiful about it too, because yeah. it goes back to that point about that 
how I described the essence of the project as a dialogue. Mm. And it's it continues to be a dialogue and it continues to to show to sh- to shed light on on relationships that might not have otherwise you might not have otherwise realized. Mm, that's true. And so that's also kind of beautiful about the work. And that's that's how I found your work too. I found your work through through reading about Axel Hambury. Mm. And that's and but why did I read about Axel Hambury? Because I went to Svalbard. Mm. An artist residency. And so all these all these different paths lead you to unexpected places and unexpected conversations such as this one um Mm. but that's life isn't it that's that's what life is it's about that and that's especially what hiking through a wilderness is like too Mm. hiking through the mountains is is like you have to you have to open yourself up to to the unexpected and i think you also speak about that the phenomenon of the unexpected encounter in this book too in the text somewhere if i remember correctly yeah how important is, is is openness to your work? I think it's crucial when I mean, and when you work as an artist as well. That's like, that's uh, the most. That's the f- like. That's the best thing when you're in this process of not knowing where it should end. Uh, when you start a new project, uh, when you when you're open for the unpredictable and like uh, when you just started it um and when you've thought of how how the project should be then it's just the work that is left and that's that's not so much fun <laughs> i think uh, yeah yeah i mean um i think openness is essential but it also means uh, having com- you have to have compassion for your subject matter mm. and it means it means you know when you're open to a landscape when you're open to a place in the context of the question or the project that you've assigned yourself as an artist working in these landscapes there the, the it becomes a a region of infinite possibility there's not one thing that you're looking for things Things actually are the things themselves reveal are revealed by themselves, in a yeah. way. Um, yeah, that kind of that phenomenon of revelation as well, in a secular sense, not in a religious <laughs> sense, but perhaps it can be. It can, yeah, the experience can become religious mm. after a while. But sure. it's just essentially it just goes back to that feeling of openness that. Mm. Um, of letting things come to you. Of course, it's not purely, purely that. You've asked yourself a question. You've asked yourself a question about Axel Hambury and mm. Emmanuel Hoffling. And perhaps there are implicit questions there as well about what, what's your situation within contemporary mm. Swedish society and Swedish photography. Mm. But yeah, how, how do you, how do you perceive your, actually, how do you perceive yourself within like your place within contemporary Swedish photography, from your perspective? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm so contemporary, actually. <laughs> it, it depends. I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I describe myself an, as an art photographer, but it's also leaning towards documentary photography, or maybe it's a 
like is it Alex Soth that describes himself as a slow documentary photographer or something? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I mean, you're really before our conversation, I was thinking of how I would sum you up. Mm. And one of the things that came to me was was that question of how 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 documentary is this? Uh, well, it, it, it clearly has the hallmarks of what we would perceive as traditional documentary photography, but you're pushing the boundaries too. And there, one of the reasons I think you're pushing the boundaries is is because you are including another photographer's work. Mm. You're you and you're also navigating this space between the real and the imaginary as well. Mm. Uh, we don't know what happened to Manuel Hoffling. We don't, no. we, n- neither do we really, neither can we say that either of us will ever truly understand Axel Hambury and what he was searching for. Mm. Um, and so there is, there is, there is like a depth to this, a, a mysterious depth to these images. And, as you say, you're you're kind of following these paths into into at least what a place that Axel Hambury described, or or at least you've described it as a blind spot. Well, it was a blind spot to Axel before he he went there. Mm. At least mm. from the perspective of Axel, it was a it was a blind spot in the in the mainstream Swedish imagination mm. at a time when, as I said before. Europe was undergoing this radical transformation of and becoming more nationally aware of itself. Uh, and, you know, great, I mentioned to you before that I think, it, I think it would be quite interesting to consider this historical relationship between, well, between now and then and, and, if we think about something else I wanted to ask you about was, you know, I don't think we've spoken about it a lot. And I think there's more to be said about it is, 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 is Axel Hambury's book, The Mountains of Sarek. Mm. And within a historical context, you know, that was the, these images that Axel was making that you, that your photographs are in turn a response to these Mm. photographs were originally I think if I if I if I've done my research well enough, they were made between around uh, nineteen hundred to maybe nineteen thirty. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So they were he and over just like yourself over multiple trips. Mm. Axel Hambury went there, must have gone there multiple times yeah. to make the to make this work, and it wasn't mm. purely to make photographs. No, it was to, much more than that to him, and this was at a time when not just Sweden, but other countries were, you know, were being transformed by the Industrial Revolution, which, uh, which in turn left much more time for, for leisure. Mm. And so I think it's quite, I think it's relevant to, to note that there's, there's an underlying implicit logic to, to the mountains of Sarek because it was published as you've already said, by the Swedish Tourist Association. So there's a relationship there as well mm. between the freeing up of leisure time because of the factory system, at least in principle, 
mm. and people having more money to spend, living mm. standards increasing, at least for the for the general population. Mm. Um. Yeah, and in that context, how how do how do you think if if we imagine that to have been the mood at the time, how do you think that influenced the work or the photographs or the text that he published in the mountains of Sarek? Um, I think, I mean, there was also this uh, me- mechanical area where, uh, era where it, like after the ind- industrial re- revolution, where it made it possible to measure things in nature uh, through machine. And I guess the camera was part of this as well. Uh, so when he did, it's actually a funny story about the map as well, because just after he did the map of Zarek, there was one person in, in a magazine, uh, also published by then, uh, that said that Hambari made Zarek predictable, <laughs> because you you know what to find and yeah, where. Yeah, that's really, and, I've had that. I've, I've had thoughts like that, not in yeah. that, but so it's interesting that I, to hear it in that context. Yeah, but it's also, as you mentioned, like you you were going past a yoke or a, like a water and almost uh, got, got lost in there. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I think awe. in Swedish, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a river. River, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so even though like the map exists, you can't be really sure because everything changed, like in. But even if it doesn't, even if the map is accurate, and a good map should be accurate, mm. because you're depending on it for your life in many cases. Mm. The photographs that you will expose cannot be found on a map. No. The representative quality of a map. We don't see the world like that. No. No. We don't view the world from 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 God's point of view. Mm. But we trust it somehow with our. We lives. trust it, but then a good map. What makes a good map? A good ma- well, and what makes a good representation? Well, that would be a map that gives you lots of detail. And there are some terrible maps. I've been in, I've been um, thinking, okay, the map looks good. There's no swamps here. Um, doesn't seem to. It seems the map's telling me that there's. It's quite flat here. But actually, you then enter the landscape, and it is flat. But the map doesn't tell you that there's a massive boulder field, you know, mm-hmm. that you have to traverse. Mm. And I've, I think the, the map is, as a photographer, and, and you, we, we, I think we're speaking to the same experience here, and you've obviously had similar thoughts as well. But the map doesn't make, it doesn't always make it predictable because it gives you this illusion of predictability as well. Mm. then there are limits to what a map can reveal. And I think it's also important to stress that, I think it's obvious to, to, to state this actually, that the photographs that we return home with, they do not appear on the map. You know, no. They're, no. They're, they are what the map cannot show. And actually, they'll, the landscape will never appear like that again. It's for one night only, you know? Yeah, when that's the, true. Um, so there's this ephemeral nature as well. And even though you speak in the, in the book about how Sarek hasn't changed much in the, mm. since the last Ice Age, I kind of view it more from a phenomenological point of view that 
it maybe in a maybe if you represent Sarek as a in that way, it's true in that context. In a geological context, it's true. But if you stand there as a photographer, the landscape is always changing, yeah. and the meaning of it is always dancing and playing. And the meaning of a landscape is also is also how we how we respond to it. And so, when you put your images next to axles as well, that that changes the meaning of this place too. It adds this historical dimension, but it also becomes a work of art in itself. And so it's this, it's like what I said at the beginning, that you literally are making history visible. But that's because history is always unfolding in front of our eyes. Mm. In fact, behind our eyes, more, more so. Mm. It's, it happens on both sides of the of our eyes in different ways, but um, I just think I I, I love I, I think about the map and I think I think about the, the representation of the map a lot as well. Mm. Uh, I think it was in Moby Dick. One of the characters says, uh, "True places never appear on the map." Okay, interesting. Something like I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> But mm. something like that. Um, mm. And I think that's really important, but it depends what you define as true. You know, yeah. um, is it your experience or is it something more objective? Well, mm. that's another philosophical question. But mm. um, yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting to see, see the map t- uh, in contrast to the the photograph the the image uh, and uh, i was very inspired by that of thinking of in this way when working with the project through humber's view of things and how you like kind of met his pictures uh, through with thinking of uh, like m- that most of his images were just part of his measurements uh, in a way, um, but also like when you browsed through all of this three thousand images, you also found images of his dog, for example. So m- some of them were very like personal in a way. Um, it's both this scientific gaze or whatever on the things in the landscape. The mountain tops and like the the weather station he made and stuff like that. But sometimes uh, something something strikes you when you browse through his images and you see that he also photographed his family and there's a cabin where his sons uh, wrote Axel Axel's name. Yeah, but I've, like that's, that's in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's also like really personal images and, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I think being a photographer is also about how to, how to find a way to condense those stories and those histories and, and again, just make, make history visible mm. and in a way that doesn't necessarily provide us with any concrete answers, but keeps us keeps us investigating keeps us searching for that for what it means to to assume to assume a, a place on the earth 
Mm. I think I think it's like similarities between the landscape and the archive images as well. Like there's those layers of time there, uh, which you can't really fully understand. So it's it's like a mystery itself. Both the the archive image uh, and also like the the layers of history in the landscape is also impossible to to grasp or un- fully understand. I'm not sure, but I'm, I I was like very inspired about like thinking of him as uh, using the camera as an instrument uh, to to try to un- understand the surroundings, maybe. So that's how I think about photography as well, maybe. Like if if there's something I don't fully understand through like perception or uh, then I tend to photograph that I think um, and maybe like that was was Hamburg also did I'm not sure <laughs> but do you think that so photography really can achieve that understanding no I don't think <laughs> you need I don't think you need to but I mean I'm not not trying to explain stuff through photography, just uh, pointing on what I think is interesting. Is that yeah. making any sense? It's like that primordial sense of curiosity. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And then an openness is, is related to curiosity. Mm. Being curious is, it's, it's, it's almost a, an ontological qual- quality of the universe. From the standpoint of being human, you know, mm. which mm. is the standpoint from which everything appears, mm. at least in the context of uh, of ourselves, you know, mm. and it's really interesting to I think a lot about where does where does the I fit into all of this, and it fits somewhere, <laughs> uh, but it's something just to think about, you know, if it wasn't for our I, the world would not appear. So we are we are in this we are. In an ontological sense, we exist in in this uh, as a component in the system of perception, mm. materially speaking, bodily speaking. But then there's the spiritual element to seeing too, which is more re- which is related to the concepts of meaning and you know the invisibility invisible qualities of of perception as well. What does it mean to think in in relation to what appears as well? And, you know, this is what this podcast is all about. That's why I called it The Land Behind. Mm, that's a good name. Um, you know, what's the thinking behind? But also, what does it mean to venture into a new place? What does it mm. mean to to go to Sarek? Or what does it mean to go to Kielpasharve, where I've made a lot of my work? Or what does it mean to go to Svalbard? You know, what mm. does it mean to live in a world whose possibilities are in principle infinite mm. you know there's we have that we have the sphere of the familiar we live within the sphere of the familiar but beyond the sphere of the familiar is kind of this infinite space of of questions and and unrealized meanings and you know i think that goes back to your point of of photography being a a way to understand your place within that field of possibility. 
that horizon of possibility. Um, being interested as well is, is so is so important and it's it's so underrated because I feel as if you know we've both had a photographic education and I'm sure for many years you were encouraged to to justify uh, your work mm. and yeah. I think I think there's I think that's very important to to have I think that kind of education is so important. But you have to, it's, it's one stage, it's one station in the life of a photographer. You, 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 it's really important to, to be exposed to that, but it's also really important to be able to return to the reason why you started photographing in the first place, which is just this basic interest and this basic curiosity in the world. Mm. That kind of education is almost like a ladder. Mm. That once you once you've reached a new stage in in your understanding as an artist, you can you don't need the ladder anymore because you, you can then throw it away. Once you've used the ladder to climb up, mm. you can then throw 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 the ladder away. Yeah, you know. I think that's why I also with this project and many others after that, I tend to do my research afterwards, so I keep like the fun of doing the photograph. So I don't know everything about the project beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but it's really easy, as you said, that you, that you lose the fun of photographing. Yeah, um, and you lose, you forget that being interested in the world is, a, is, is, is is a concrete dimension of of human experience. You have to learn how to think critically, but it's not a place that you, it's not you should you shouldn't allow yourself to get stuck there. Because then you then you're no longer a photographer. You know, you're you're something else, you're a critic. And as Simon Murphy said, critics aren't creators, they're they're destroyers. <laughs> so <laughs> so like they they over they 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 cut everything up and dissect it until there's nothing left. Mm. I think it's really important to be able to communicate your work in a critical manner, but yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's just about don't lose the interest, don't lose the joy, and don't lose the passion. Otherwise, otherwise, you you just close yourself off to further possibilities. It's like what you said: you don't go into the landscape knowing, or you don't pretend to know anything about it, mm. but. So you're in that because when you do pretend to know something about something, you close yourself off to all the other ways it could be, mm. and you stop listening to all the other ways it could be. You don't even give the other ways a chance. No, there's no mercy in that kind of attitude. We live in a mm. we live in a period where everyone has their, you know. Everyone thinks they have the truth. Sadly, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, I don't pretend to have any truth. I'm just, I just go there to listen and be attentive. And I think that's so important as a photographer. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Before we, before we end, I know you've been working on other projects. What are your, what are your current plans? Uh, Right now I'm working together with a friend, uh, Sean Gardner from, from Dorset, England. Um, We're doing a project called, 
Taylor Ash together, which uh, is a portrait uh, on the ash tree and the ash dieback, uh, which is causing like uh, the the death of the ash tree. Um, they say that ninety percent of the ash tree will disappear from Europe within a few years. Um, so we we have been photographed the tree since 2018, I think. Um, and now we part of a group show at the Nature History Museum in Gothenburg, which opens in 8th of July. Um, so that's at Slotskogen? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've been there. There's a lot of taxiderm- yeah. taxidermy there. Yeah, yeah, you should come. <laughs> so where did you say it is? Where the exhibition is. What, when, what are the, when are the dates? And 8th of July. 8th of July. Yeah, so it's quite soon. Uh, I'll be, I'll be in, uh, I'll be at Peltzan. I'll be, I think I'm coming back on the 9th of July. Otherwise I would have, I'd love to have been there. Mm. But, um, yeah, so that, that project is about um, trees, the trees. Yeah, but, how but did also you, the... It's another collaboration. Yeah, it is. So how did you meet but, John Gardner? Uh, we met uh, at the master degree at uh, the photography school here in Gothenburg, uh, at uh, Gothenburg University. Uh, we studied together and we sort of had both taken pictures of the same tree. Um, and so we decided we should do a project together. And since the disease is spreading through Europe from the east of Europe to the west, Europe, uh, I've been photographed the dead trees on Ireland and he's been photographing the living trees. So it's like this pra- past and present. Uh, so is there, is there text with that project? Yeah, small text uh, is going to be presented. But in this context, I don't think it would all only be images and the title or something. But it's also going to be a book later on. So how did that project begin then? How did that collaboration come about? Uh, I think it was me presenting something uh, on a critic class. uh, And he said that he'd been photographing ash trees and elms as well, uh, since they both having diseases that will affect the trees. Um, So, yeah, and then we applied for money uh, and... Then we started, sort of. So it's this is a, like a very analog. We're both doing like um, large format, four by fives, uh, black and white photos. Uh, so they're very like classic, classic images and portraits. So it's also portraits of the landscape, um, where the trees stands or was standing. And so that's got funding as well. Yeah. And and you said it began a number of years ago. When did it begin again? It was 2018, I think. Um, and so you so were we, studying then? Yeah, yeah. I think we started it when we we finished uh, the master in, in the same year, sort of. Uh, so we started it that summer. And it, yeah. It's also really important to stress that, or important to mention here that, Projects can take years before they're truly realized. 
And you began your project, The Margin of Error, in 2013, and you only yeah. realised it as a book in 2019. Mm. Um, and there's not really any... Some people, I think there's some photographers that try and do a book maybe every two years, which is <laughs> kind of insane if you think about it. Yeah. Um, you're not really given, given the work that much time to, to, to sit with people. But that, that could happen. I usually have several projects, like ongoing projects. So, so it, it could happen that books come out quite regularly. Yeah, like, and you ha- you have other books as well. Yeah. How many how many books have you published now? It's four books and one smaller publication. Uh, and if people are interested in in these books, where can they where can they find more information? Uh, on my webpage, uh, but also on Black Book Publications, yeah, which yeah. is the, the publishing house that I'm part of. And are there, st- are there still copies available of The Margin of Error? Yeah, it is. It is. So if anyone has made it this far into our conversation, um, there are still, well, one, thank you for listening. And there are still copies available on, on your website or via back, Black Book publications of The Margin of Error. Yep. Um, and I would, I would highly suggest that you... Get yourself a copy. How many? How many issues or how many copies are left? Uh, it's around fifty, I think. So it's and not this, that many. And, how, and what's what was the what was the edition? Six hundred. Wow. So, for considering this was published uh, independently, that's that's a huge number to to get rid of. So that speaks to the the value of the work, I guess, more than anything. But it's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's, it's really easy to see a book as an object. Mm. But it's really important to acknowledge the ideas that, that go into bookmaking mm. and the process. And the process, as I said this before, I'm at risk of repeating myself, but, you know, just to stress it once more that this book essentially began in 2013 and it wasn't published until 2019. So I think it's just important to, to remind ourselves just how much work goes into these kinds of projects. And you've done a beautiful job. So, yeah, thank you very much for, for taking me into the, the land behind the book. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> Thanks again, Emmanuel. If you enjoyed my conversation with Emmanuel Serequist, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon via the link in the description. Until next time, thank you for listening.